Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 is we continue our study of Matthew's gospel and Jesus the King. This morning, we'll see in this chapter Jesus' authority, the authority of the King. The second half of the chapter, Matthew 23, or 21, verses 23 through 46. As we walk through this section of Scripture, we'll see this central idea that Jesus' authority opens the way to God. His authority opens the way to God. We'll take this in three sections, the sections that we have here in Scripture, and we'll read now together verses 23 to 27. Would you read along with me, please, Matthew 21, verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It was last Sunday afternoon, I got a text from a friend, and it just said, Kobe Bryant dead in helicopter crash. Crazy. My first thought was, this can't be true, because Kobe Bryant couldn't be dead. Now, if you don't know who Kobe Bryant is, he's one of the all-time great players in NBA history a winner of five championship rings, NBA MVP, couple-time finals MVP, won a couple of Olympic gold medals, multiple-time all-star, like 18-time all-star, scoring champion, you name it, and he had done it. But there are other great players in NBA history. Part of the thing that made this unbelievable was that Kobe was just 41 years old. He had retired just a few years ago, and if you looked at him now, he pretty much looked the same as when he was playing. It looked like he could walk right back out on the court and play again. And so when I got this text, I thought, this can't be true, and I began looking it up and soon realized as kind of much of the rest of the world was realizing that it was true, that Kobe and nine people total had died in a kind of a freak helicopter accident. Lakers were supposed to play on Tuesday night, but because of the the accident, they didn't play, and they postponed their next game till Friday. And on Friday, they had a, a tribute to Kobe Bryant. I was never a huge Kobe fan, but I mean, I like sports, and so I kept up with it that way. But there was, there was something about this, the loss of Kobe, his daughter, and these, these other people that was particularly gripping. And I think it was just kind of the sudden, unexpected nature of it. But it was something to see that night, uh, the singer Usher, seeing Amazing Grace as people looked on. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then he would go on to sing, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. Grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Now, I don't know if Usher or anyone else there really understands the full impact of those words or their full meaning. I'm sure John Newton had no idea a couple hundred years ago when he wrote them that they would be sung in a setting like that. But what I thought is, in this moment, what Usher is declaring is that we all long for someone with the power, with the authority to banish death, 
to defeat death, to take death and crush death to death. We want someone who's powerful enough to defeat our greatest enemy. Authority can be a bad word. It's not a popular word in popular culture. But authority depends on your perspective. So, for instance, if you are driving to church this morning and you're running a little bit late and, you know, Sunday on Savannah Highway, there's not much traffic, and so you're busting down Savannah Highway at 60 miles an hour, and you see an officer sitting off to the side of the road, that's bad. Like that authority in that moment, that's a bad view of authority. But if last night, I don't know, you're at the grocery store kind of late, picking up some stuff for lunch today, and as you walk out of the store, some large men come up to you and they begin saying harassing things to you, and you're on your way to the car, and right then a, a police officer pulls up next to you, that's good. That's a good sign of authority. When you're two years old and it's time to go to bed and mom and dad are like, go to sleep, the parent's voice, it's bad. You don't want to go to sleep. But, but when you're in the mall and you're surrounded by people and you're two years old and, and you, you, you turn around and you realize mom and dad are gone and then you hear mom's voice, that's good. That's good authority. You see, authority at some level depends upon our relationship with that authority. And here in Matthew 21 and Matthew 22, Jesus goes through a series of conflicts related to authority, specifically his authority. And if you remember, he spends each night out in Bethany, and now he's tracked his way back into Jerusalem, and he's in a series of conflicts with religious leaders. And so we have the conflict, and then as Jesus does, he tells us a series of stories or parables to help us understand what's going on here. So Jesus has spent the night outside town in the village of Bethany. Now he's tracked two miles back into town, and he heads straight for the temple. Now, if you remember, the last time Jesus was in the temple, he created quite a scene. He cast out the money changers. And so when Jesus shows back up, the religious leaders are ready to challenge his authority. Jesus' authority challenged. Verses 23 to 27 introduces to this key idea, the idea of authority. It appears four times in five verses. There's no secret what this conflict is about. It is about authority. The chief priests, verse 23, and elders of the people came up to him. The chief priests are a group of elevated clergy within Jewish society, so it includes the chief priest himself and also previous chief priests, as well as people who are sort of, I don't know, they're the upper echelon of clerical leaders, the upper priests within Jewish culture. The elders of the people are all the most influential non-priests. They're all the, the heads of the most influential Jewish families. They're sort of like the deacon chair and the, and, the, and the committee chair. They're all the big important Sunday school teachers. And so all these co people come to Jesus and they challenge him. Now when Matthew describes them, often we see these groups described in terms of their theological positions. So sometimes we see Pharisees and Sadducees. That says something about what they believe theologically. It'd be like saying the premillennialists and the amillennialists came together. But here he describes them not in terms of their theological positions, but rather their status. These are important people. Because this is a conversation about authority. And these are people that when it comes to authority, you don't want to mess with. So in verse 23, these people have two very straightforward questions for Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? In other words, 
who gave you the authority to be throwing people out of the temple and teach this way? And secondly, who gave you this authority? Now, Jesus is a remarkable person. I mean, he's, he's one of those gifted people who could just do anything in life he wanted. I mean, he's a better healer than the best doctors. He's a better teacher than the best rabbis. He's a better debater than the best lawyers. And so now he's going to beat these guys at their own game. As a good debater is often going to do, he responds with a question of his own. Okay, you got a question for me. I got a question for you. And if you could answer my question, then I'll answer yours. And his question is, where does John's baptism come from? You see, John the Baptist's message was the baptism of repentance, that we are all sinners in need of God's grace. We must turn from our sin and trust the Savior. But these people aren't sinners, they think. They're the best people in Israel. None of them want to admit that they need saving. So they reject John's teaching. Well, now they're trapped because John was held in high esteem by the people as a prophet like no other. They don't want to admit that John is sent by God, but at the same time, if they say he's not, they're in a trap because he's very popular. They don't want the crowds angry with them. So like any good or bad politician, they equivocate. They say, we don't know, even though they have an opinion. Jesus has trapped them, and he says, okay, fine, I won't answer your question either. And so now they're at this stalemate. This section, you see, is about this central truth that Jesus, as God, has the authority to declare what is right and true. These people don't want to accept this. But before we move on, I think there's another point here as, as, as well, especially for leaders, because these leaders, it's not just that they won't submit to Jesus' authority. They manifest another problem his, here, and that is that they fear the people around them more than they fear God himself. A man named Ed Welch has written a book called When People Are Big, God is Small. It's all about the fear of man. God calls leaders to submit to his word, to follow his spirit. And it doesn't matter who you are, whenever we become driven by any authority other, other than God's word himself, we run into instability. We run, run into drift. It's, it's, it's what James calls being driven and tossed by the waves, a double-minded person. We begin wondering, how will people respond to this? What will people think of me if I do this? And then we become a prisoner to the crowds. Well, these people are prisoners to the crowds, even though they ostensibly rule the crowds. Because either... They won't get what they want, or they have to manipulate the crowd into wanting what they want. So it leads us to being prisoners of fear or being abusive, manipulative leaders. But God gives us in his word a picture of humble, submitted leaders. People who empty themselves, like Jesus emptied himself, of personal ambition for the sake of his name. So his glory his fame, his cause, his mission, his kingdom become the reason that we exist. We don't exist for our own sake. We exist for him. So we take our marching orders from his word, from the divine authority of the word of God. 
You see, we oh, so often just kind of tip our cap to the word, like, oh yeah, we believe the Bible. But the word must be such a part of our lives that it soaks, it seeps through every part of us. It drenches our mind. It seeps into our hearts and affects every part of our being so that the word of God is our anchor. When the winds of culture blow, when the winds of public opinion inside or outside the walls of a church blow, God's word is our anchor that keeps us from drifting. It tells us what we believe, the truth. It tells us how we believe it, in love. It shapes both what we do and how we do it. And often God's people just run to one of these sides, don't they? They jettison the truth in the interest of being nice. Or they hold the truth in such a way that no one wants to listen. But what God says in his word is that his word shapes both what we believe and how we live it out. You cannot separate the two. It's truth in love. So as God's people, we seek to live this out like our Savior. Well, after this challenge to his authority, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate then how authority and submission actually work. Jesus' authority understood Read along with me in verse 28 now, verses 28 through 32. Jesus, speaking to these men, says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the very center of our beings, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Jesus tells two stories about vineyards that slice right to the very center of the issue. Now, I'm generally a show-me, don't-tell-me kind of guy, as in, like, what you do matters. Words can be cheap. And the first story is about two sons, and it says words are cheap. So you got one son who ostensibly says he will obey his father and go work in the fields, but in the end doesn't go. The other son refuses to go, but in the end he goes. So which son obeys? Well, of course the one who says he won't, but then does actually obey. So what matters more, your words or your actions? Clearly, your actions. And Jesus uses that to teach this truth, that tax collectors and prostitutes will go to heaven before these good people. Now, this sounds shocking even today, but it would have been far more shocking in the ears of these first century leaders. I mean, Jesus didn't choose just any sins, any position. He chose the ones that were most culturally despicable and said, these people are actually going to go to heaven before you do. Tax collectors are known for being unethical cheats, and prostitutes are the dregs of society, completely moral scum. It'd be like Jesus walking in this morning and saying to us that I tell you that the president of Planned Parenthood and the leaders of the local chapters of the LGBTQ communities will be in heaven before you. So it's kind of heavy. 
So how is it that people like this enter God's kingdom and these other people don't? Because they responded to John the Baptist's message about Jesus. John came saying two things, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you consider yourself the best of society or if everyone considers you the lowest of society, if you turn from your sin and you place your faith in this Lamb, this Jesus, this Messiah, God will save you. You see, the only people who enter God's kingdom are those who believe that they're sinners. People who know they need a sacrifice in their place. People who are gripped by the reality of who they are apart from Jesus. How can bad people get to heaven? How can unrighteous people have fellowship with a righteous God? How can unholy people enter the presence of a holy God? Well, there's a word that sounds like a refrain in verse 32. It's an accusation. You did not believe him. The tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Then again, Jesus says, you, even after you saw it, did not believe him. The only way into this kingdom is through faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus, the Son of God, to save us from our sin. I mean, the culture of our community is full of people who are convinced that they will enter the kingdom of God because they attended VBS as a child or because they spent some time in Sunday school or maybe their name is even on a membership roll or maybe they even attend church. We're good church-going people. But what Jesus says is that if that's the way you conceive of your relationship with God, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter God's kingdom before you. The only way to heaven is first recognizing that you don't deserve to get in. The only way to get into heaven is to admit that you are a sinner before a holy God. And then trust a life that you couldn't live. Trust the perfectly lived life of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus. And conceive of yourself as someone utterly unworthy, undeserving of God's grace. Trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. If we trust any of these other things, what we do, who our parents are, where we spend our time, then we're just like these religious leaders who are depending on their own goodness and Jesus tells them they will not enter his kingdom. So would you turn from your sin, especially the sin of self-righteousness, and trust Christ today? Last week, Jesus cursed a fig tree. Why? Because there was no fruit. Which son in this story doesn't obey? The one who says he will, but doesn't. Jesus is teaching the same thing that we find in James chapter 1. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Or in Matthew chapter 7, by their fruits you will know them. You see, those who know Jesus live as if they know Jesus. Those who know Jesus live and, and grow in Christ's likeness. We are saved by faith alone. But faith that saved never remains alone. It produces and lives itself out in a life of good works, a, a life that looks like Jesus. Well, Jesus makes his authority clear, but the priests and elders reject his right to rule. Jesus' authority rejected, verse 33. 
We'll read now to the end of the chapter. Jesus tells another story. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This story is simple yet pretty graphic in its imagery. My grandfather grew up a sharecropper in Georgia. Now, sharecropping became a thing um, after the time of the Civil War, uh, made popular, especially in culture. It became, it's become famous or infamous in culture through uh, the abuse of, of uh, former slaves through the sharecropping system. But uh, my grandfather's family, were, they were sharecroppers. Where sharecropping worked was uh, you didn't own anything, but you worked a field, and basically you, you paid a portion of your work to the landowner. And it could be an abusive system because the, that portion could go up or down depending on uh, the land. And it always favored the landowner, never the tenant. And, and this is first century sharecropping. That's what's going on here. You'd have a, a landowner, and there would be tenant farmers who would come in, and they would work the land, and, and they would pay a tax, essentially, to the landowner, and they would keep enough, hopefully, to survive, and that's the way the system worked. Well, you can imagine, just like sharecropping and, and the antebellum, the, the post-Civil War South, uh, sharecropping isn't a good word. Well, tenant farming isn't a good system in the first century either. It, it tends to favor abusive authorities rather than the, 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 the ones who actually do the work. And so Jesus takes this system, a system that they know, and he tells them a story. A man owns a vineyard. He worked really hard. He built it well. He's made sure it watered. He, he has a fence around it so it can be taken care of. And, and then he has tenants farm it. Well, these tenants exist in an agreement with the landowner. And the landowner sends servants to collect rent from the tenants, probably part of the crop. When the servants show up, the, 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 the farmers beat the servants. Kill, stone, servants. Well, landowner apparently is a pretty patient guy, and he sends another group of servants. Same thing happens a second time. Killing, stoning, beating, servants, rejecting the servants. Well, this is just getting out of hand. And so the landowner decides, this time I'm going to send my son, the heir to my estate. They will listen to him. But these are evil farmers. And so when the son shows up, they're like, if we kill the son, we get the land. So they kill the son. Well, 
the story is told to emphasize a couple of things. It takes a common conception of the landowner and actually emphasizes that in this case, this is a remarkably merciful man. I mean, think about how many opportunities he gives these people. Multiple servants, multiple times. He sends his own son, emphasizing his repeated acts of mercy, giving them chances to do what's right. And it emphasizes as well the wickedness of the farmers, that every time they reject the servants, even to the point of rejecting the man's son. Yet, in the end, they go too far, don't they? So what will they do? Verse 41. I I love the way that they answer this. He'll put those miserable wretches to death. Such colorful language. And this sets up for us the whole point of the passage, Jesus' authority exalted, verses 42 to 45. And the key to understanding this comes in verse 42. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, 22, and 23, verses that Charlie read, not sang, earlier. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They're standing in the temple having this conversation. And yet, the very people who love the temple are rejecting the foundation on which the entire structure of God's redemptive economy depends. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, a couple of chapters later, later covers in a few more spaces for us. Matthew 23, 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. You see, prophet after prophet has come and declared that the Messiah is coming. And that when he comes, he will have the right to rule God's people. And yet generation after generation persecuted these prophets and rejected their message all the way up until John the Baptist and they killed him. Now Jesus, God's son, is here. And he will be rejected more graphically, more violently than the prophets who came before him. So Jesus jumps to the Old Testament and ties in their own scriptures. He says, have you never read the scriptures? Of course they have. Of course they know Psalm 118. But he's teaching them that there is a new structure being built, a new temple, and that he, God's son, is the cornerstone of this new temple. These people are in the temple. Jesus starts talking to them about a vineyard. He kind of switches targets on them a little bit. The owner's son walks into the vineyard. Some tenant farmers, impressed with their own importance, challenge his right to be there. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? So the farmer's son reminds them of the work of the last servant, verses 24 and 25. I also will ask you one question, and I will tell you the answer. And if you will tell me the answer, then I also will tell you. The baptism of John, where did it come from? Yet these tenants know they're in a perilous position. This final servant was a well-loved servant. His words were powerful. His life was authentic. His prophecies came true. So these tenant farmers play ignorant. We don't know. So Jesus does the most provocative thing to these tenants, the chief priests, the elders, And he rejects their authority visibly and publicly. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then verse 44 makes an ominous promise. The one who falls on Jesus, the cornerstone, will be broken. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
You see, just Jesus comes as a savior, but he will return as a judge and crush his enemies. Isaiah 8 prophesies this, and he will become a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus, God's son, has come. And he has come like the farmer's son with the full authority of the father. And he's going to not only cleanse the temple, but he will tear their system of worship down around their ears. The building they're standing in isn't the true temple. They're looking at the true temple. And yet they completely miss him. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's temple, of the church. Jesus uses a fig tree, a metaphor of a building, and a story about a wealthy farmer to make this point. He is the cornerstone, the temple, the true dwelling place of God. To receive this temple by faith is to be delivered from sin and death. To reject him is to be crushed by the cornerstone. You see, the history of redemption is all about this. It's a history of the temple finding a dwelling place for God. It started in a garden as Adam and Eve walked with God and yet by their own sin were cast out of this dwelling place. Then it was a tent, a tabernacle moving through the wilderness as God's people followed God's presence as he led them. Then God's presence inhabited this building, the temple. But this temple was destroyed and this day is looking forward to being destroyed and all of these dwelling places point to this truth that the true temple is Jesus. God is dwelling in a human being. And then through Jesus, God makes us his temple. I mean, this is just mind-blowing because at the end of history, Revelation takes this theme, it, it ups it a level for us. First, as we're walking through heaven, we see this temple imagery. And, and, and we're looking around, looking for a temple and realize the temple is in heaven. But at the climax of history, Revelation 21, at the end of it all, we learn that the true temple isn't the reincarnation of this building in Jerusalem. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all this imagery. You see, this physical temple is just a shadow of the heavenly things. It's a copy of the greater reality. John writes, I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. You see, all of these images point forward to this reality that history culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they're standing there looking at him and they completely miss him. Who inherits this temple? Verse 43 says it's people producing its fruits. When people ask if you're a Christian, it's common to point to an experience when I was four or six, this happened to me. I prayed to receive Christ. And really, for someone like me, that's when it started as a very young child. And in the sense that that's a start of a lifelong relationship with Christ, that's true, but if all we can point to is our experience and no relationship with Christ, growing in grace, repenting of sin, running to the Word, then the Bible offers no assurance for our relationship with God. You see, the root of the gospel produces a fruit of life that walks with God and with his people. You can't separate the root of faith from the fruit of life. Now imagine for a moment that you're not a first century Jew. That's not hard because none of you are. 
But imagine that your idol isn't the temple, but you still know what it's like to erect an idol in the place of Jesus. We don't believe that the temple is the climax of our existence. Rather, we believe that career advancement is the climax of our existence. Or we believe that living life through our kids, being fulfilled through our kids, is the climax of our existence. Or, or some sort of social standing, or, or maybe a romance. You see, we don't have physical building, typically, but we're just as good at erecting other things as the point of our existence. But each of these things, they're God's gifts that reflect his greater gift in Jesus Christ. Earthly joys are just small ways of experiencing the greatest joy, the greater joy that God gives us through his son, Jesus. So when we make an idol out of our work, or out of our kids, or out of our marriage, or out of good health, and we prove that's our idol when we get frustrated when that thing doesn't meet our expectations, when family ain't going well, when work ain't going well, when life ain't going well, that's when we know when God is hitting our idols. That's when we remember these are not the point. We look beyond those pictures to the to true climax of history, Jesus Christ. At the end of all things, we'll get there and we'll realize that the point is the new temple. The Lord God is the temple and the Lamb. And we will worship him forever and ever. And with all God's people from every nation and every age in history say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. That is why we exist. Brothers and sisters, these other things, they're God's good gifts. But to settle for less is to miss the point of history itself. So let's take a moment now, respond to God's word repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.